Well, good morning, everybody. Wow, that was pretty good. I'm impressed. It is good to be here with you all, um, and uh, hopefully you're as rested as I am. Uh, it's been a great 60 days for me. I don't know about you. And uh, I just want to say a real quick thank you to all those who spoke on my behalf uh, while I was out, and also to Rhett and his team who just did a fantastic job. Could we just all stop and say thank you? Really, really did. We're a blessed church. We're deep, deep, deep on, and, uh, on our talent level. So it's good to be here with you today. And uh, we're starting a new series. And part of where this series came from in my life is uh, I've just been going through a bunch of junk, both at home and my family, and at, like even in my like extended family. And our church went through some junk a few years ago. For those of you who are here, you know what you're talking about. And so last fall, I was processing with a really good friend of mine on the phone. And uh, I was talking about some stuff going on. He was just calling chicken on me, great friend uh, from Colorado. And uh, he might actually be here today. I'm not sure. And uh, if he is, Hi, welcome. Good to see D. And anyway, we're on the phone, and he's and, and he said, "Man, you need to go buy this book. It's a book by Jeff Mannion. I highly recommend it. I don't have it to show you, but it's called The Land Between. The Land Between. And uh, and while we're sitting on the phone, I'm looking it up. You know, I'm sitting there looking it up. I was actually due for a book that day. I think it was fall break. I had some margin in my schedule, which rarely happens, and I needed to clean my office. And so I thought, well, this is cool. I'm an audible learner. I'll buy the audio book. I'll listen to it while I clean my office. So for the next day and a half, that's pretty much all I did. I didn't clean my office though. I just listened to the book. And I cried and I laughed and I, and I, man, I wrestled with God and I cried some more. And I was like, man, this is amazing. I need to teach this to my church. And so we're kind of using his outline, but really what we're doing is going through the book of Exodus. So we started study, I started studying the book of Exodus, reading about it for a ministry that we launched here in January, getting to launch it publicly in August. And uh, God has been doing something to me through the book of Exodus. But here's the thing. If I were to teach the book of Exodus to you, it literally would take me six to nine months to get through the whole thing. And we're not going to do that. So we're going to take roughly the next six weeks or so. We're going to go through six major themes in the book of Exodus. But I believe this. I believe this. The book of Exodus is your story, and the book of Exodus is my story. So what I want to encourage you to do is starting tomorrow, just start reading two chapters a day. It doesn't matter when you hear this message, if you're online and it's 30 days from now or two years from now. Just start reading two chapters a day in Exodus and then go right into the numbers. And what I'm going to do is uh, for the next week or two, I'm going to go on Facebook every day uh, for six days a week, and I'm just going to give a little five or seven minute thought on the chapters for the day as it relates to maybe helping you unpack it. And then I'm going to invite some other staff and some others in the church to do that also with me so that I don't have to do this for the next two months by myself. And uh, we're just going to dig into God's word together. But what I want you to know is kind of what's going on in the story, how we got to where we are with this series, Surviving Hard Times. See, the Israelites have been in Egypt now for hundreds of years, 430 to the day from where we left off last week on Easter at the Passover. And what's happened is Pharaoh has enslaved them. Somewhere in that point in time, they became slaves in Egypt. A brutal, brutal slavery. I have all these quotes on what it was like, and I just didn't have time to read them all to you. But it was a brutal existence for the Israelites, brutal existence. And God comes in and he rescues them and he leads them. And it takes 10 plagues before the Pharaoh finally lets go and says, fine, take your people and get out of here. And so God takes the Israelites and he begins to lead them out. But before we get into all of that, what you need to know is this. Put this map up, the very first picture, and just leave it up there, if you will, for me. They started here, roughly, there's a guesstimate, they started here in Egypt and God led them over the next 40 years or so down here, all the way up here. They make a round of loop-de-loo, and they come back up to the promised land. <clears throat> now, I know some of you may drive this way by nature. <laughs> but 
just map 101 says, if you look at this map, isn't there an easier, faster path? Like maybe right up here, right along the Mediterranean Sea. It would have been beautiful. It would have been like driving Highway 1 in California. You ever done that? Like this is glorious. Thank you, God. We were once slaves and now you're here to bless us. But here's the thing, and I don't want you to miss this. This is a hard road, a hard road. In fact, what we're going to see on their journey, this could be full of turns and difficulty and pain. It's going to be full of sin and complacency and complaint. But the pages of Exodus are going to overflow with the mercy and the provision of God. What is perhaps most amazing, though, is this. It's how God begins to bring about transformation in the Israelites through the arid desert full of turmoil and transition. In fact, Dr. Robert Peterson wrote a summary of what this land was like. And so what I did is I'm going to read to you his summary, and I just have maybe nine or ten pictures. They're just going to start to slowly pop up. So you get an idea of what this land would look like, maybe as compared to this land. Here's what he says. There are few hell holes on earth more desolate than the string of deserts that form the Sinai. <clears throat> Satellite photos show it to be a sun-baked emptiness as barren as a moonscape. With little humidity to block the sun's rays, the Sinai sizzles with double the solar radiation of more humid places. As a result, it loses almost as much heat at night Temperatures soar above 120 degrees Fahrenheit during the day, and they plunge below freezing after sunset. Windswept and treeless mountains anchor its southern regions. Their barren peaks plunge into deep ravines where predators lurk in the shadows of an endless maze of hard rock canyons. Blazing hot deserts make up the northern Sinai. Those who set out across these badlands enter nature's furnace of affliction. Desert quicksand has been known to swallow whole caravans. Sands driven at bullet speed by violent winds disintegrate travelers with the full force of a sandblaster until nothing is left but their sandals. The Sinai is inhospitable and uninhabitable, offering only hunger Thirst and death to those who dare enter its savage domains. Yet, God called some three million sons and daughters of Abraham out of Egypt on an epic 40-year trek across the Sinai. He could have led them along the Mediterranean Sea. That would have been a romp in the park compared to the brutality of the Sinai. On the surface, this desert crossing seems so sadistic but in fact, it is a severe mercy designed to forge a great nation out of a rag-tag rabble. Let me just propose to you today. So whatever you're going through, I told you, I think in my last message before I went on sabbatical, that you're going to have a hard season in life, you're going to have a good season in life. There's some in between. But whichever one you're in, you need to know that there may be another one coming. So if you're in a hard season, you need to know this isn't the end, and we're going to see that in their story. But if you're in a good season, you need to know this is also probably not the end. And that's important because when you get into a hard season, however it is you got there, whatever it is it means for you, you need to know this. When we see the journey of the Israelites, and we notice it's our journey, and we learn this, that God often brings transformation through the furnace of affliction. God often brings transformation 
through the furnace of affliction. In fact, Graham Goldsworthy, a theologian, he writes this. The exodus is the end of captivity, but it is, but it is only the beginning of freedom. It's the ending of captivity, but it's only the beginning of freedom. And these Israelites do not yet know how to be free. So what I want to do is just pause right now. I want to pray. You're like, isn't it depressing? Yeah, I know. But it gets really good here in a minute. So let's pray. <laughs> Father God in heaven, um, Lord, I just pray right now. We're all dealing with different stuff going on in our lives. Our own sin and shame. Sin and shame put on us by other people and their poor choices. God, just life in a broken world where sickness and disease often reign. And Father, what we know is you came to put death to death. That's why you sent your son Jesus to, to restore that which was not the original creation and to make us new again. So Father, we pray right now, would you speak into our lives? God, give me wisdom and um, help me to get through all of this content in a very good pace. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'll try not to talk too fast, but I got a lot of ground to cover. We're covering basically four chapters in the Bible. You buckle up, all right? Everybody kind of, here we go. Where we left off last week at the Passover, the Pharaoh then says, fine, get your people and get them out of here. And what happens then is God takes the Israelites and he leads them out of there. But what's interesting is the way that God discusses that map that I just showed you, that first map, the way that God deals with that is this. Take a look in Exodus chapter 13. Take a look at verse 17. Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. Oh, look, even God told us in the Bible that he didn't do it that way. Why didn't he do it that way? God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So we already get some insight from the Bible itself why God took them on this other path. But there's so much more to this, and I don't want you to miss this. If you can leave that up for a second. What I want you to get here is this. God is very well aware of what is going on in your life. God knows that these Israelites have been slaves for centuries, maybe. We don't know how long. It's been 430 years in Egypt. At first, they started out as honored because of Joseph, and that's where the book of Genesis ends. But at some point in the story, it could be 50 years, could be 150 years. At some point, they became slaves. Brutality in, in, in Egypt. And God knows that they are beat down and afraid. See, I think we tend to think of God as so distant and removed from our lives that he doesn't understand what we're going through. Do you know that God is very patient? One of the most common phrases to describe God in the Old Testament is that he is long-suffering. means he is willing to put up with a lot of stuff from us. But what's more important is he's very, very, very well aware of their condition, and he has a plan to take them from where they are to where he intends for them to be. Look at the very next verse. I love this. Verse 18. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Thus, the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. What? You just said that if they went the other way, they'd gone through Philistine territory, they got their heinies kicked and run back home. No, no, no. See, what, what God is beginning to do, he's beginning to describe that he's leading them on a journey and that he sees in them what they do not yet see in themselves. And church, if that doesn't ring true in your heart, then I don't know what will. What God sees in them is a mighty army. What they see in themselves 
as roughly 3.6 million Jews who've been slaves and can't imagine the strength to live another life. Jump down with me to chapter 13, verse 21 and 22. So the Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. Do you catch that? (laughs) So the people are always going with a cloud by day and a fire by night. And we read later in these stories, as you dig in, you'll see for yourself that there's a fire put up behind them to wall off the Israelites, or sorry, the Egyptians from the Israelites. This is God's protection while he leads. He's basically saying, while I have this massive group of people, while I see in you an identity you do not yet see, I need to bring that about. God takes personal responsibility to lead and protect that which is his own. See, I don't know how you view God or how you were raised to think of God, but do you see him, or at least can you see him in their story as a God who is loving and caring and kind and wants to protect, protect and provide? And when you begin to see God that way, it changes the way you interact with him. So what happens in the story is they end up kind of in a tough place. <laughs> they finally get led along this journey to the, the brink of the Red Sea, and they, they extend back quite a ways, just to give you an idea. So... 3.6 million Jews, which is our best guess about what we're looking at there, they would have covered roughly 10 and a half square miles. Now, maybe you don't know what a square mile is. Don't worry, I don't either. Okay, so to make this a little easier to understand, if both, if both people and livestock, so they're, they're animals, were, were to be placed 50 wide, so 50 across, you know, lined up, they would have gone backwards 100 miles. Holy cow. Or unholy cow, I don't know, anyway. It would have taken nearly 50 hours for all of them to pass the same point. So when they come up to the edge of the Red Sea, there's a little bit of fear, trepidation, anxiety. Now what? In fact, you can see in chapter 14, they begin to get anxious. There's this connotation that they're kind of freaking out. And Moses says, just take a deep breath, everybody. God is about to put on display his might. You just watch how God is going to move. And then he tells Moses, stick your staff in the water. And he does. And the Red Sea splits and it's dry ground. And these Israelites go out into the water. And God tells them, you have no fear, no worries. Because today, this army that's chasing you is going to be destroyed right in front of you. And the scripture tells us that all of the Egyptians who went into the water after them, when God, when the last Israelite stepped foot off the, the, the land there where the water was, onto the dry land on the other side, boom, the waters came crashing down and destroyed the Egyptian army. Exodus chapter 14, verse 31 And when the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him, and they put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Do you see what just happened? God is beginning to instill in them a deep and profound trust and faith. I am with you. I will protect you. You can trust me. What you're currently experiencing is not the end of the story. God, why did you take so long for my glory? I know that answer doesn't always suffice. 
But when you begin to trust the Lord, you begin to see that he knows better than you. I've often been frustrated at God. Like, God, I had a map that you should have been following here. I mean, I thought this through really, really well. And God says, why don't we do it my way? But your way is going to take way longer. But God is good. Do you believe that? See, I'm going to guess some of you here today or listening online aren't quite sure of that. And I get it. I get it. I have been there many times in my life. Usually at this stage in my faith, it's not so much that I wonder if God is good. I just wonder exactly why it is he wants to punish me. But see, that's the problem. Did you know that God doesn't ever punish you? Oh, there, there will come a judgment day. And that's where the, so to speak, punishment will come. But not for those who are in him. There's a word that the Bible uses, and even in Hebrews it's referred to, and it's the word discipline. Discipline is dramatically different than punishment. Did you know that? See, when, when, when a father has a heart of discipline, while he may use um, painful circumstances to bring about a teaching or a lesson, it's not in order to punish, it's in order to grow. And that's exactly what God is doing in them or is about to do in them. Because what happens next is chapter 15, right at the end of verse 31. And in chapter 15, for 21 verses, they sing a song of praise. They're just, yeah, God is awesome. God is good. Woo! In fact, most of the way through that song, even the ladies, it's led by uh, Moses' sister Miriam. She's a prophetess. And she grabs her tambourine and starts putting some music to this kind of song that Moses is belting out. And all the ladies, it says, everywhere, start bringing the funk. And it's kind of awesome as everybody, it's in the Hebrew. See, if you read Hebrew, you'd see it. <laughs> and they're just getting down like, man, God just whooped them and God's awesome and this is great. And then right in verse 22, we see this. Take a look. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. You should get to the end of that verse and hear, dun, dun, dun. You ever try to go three days without water? Now, I'm not talking like in America because most of you go months without water. And it's because you drink soda. It's got water in it. Or sweet tea. It's just sugar water. Or orange juice or milk. We're talking three days in the desert, nothing to drink. What did God just create in them? Desperation. Now, when things get hard, these Israelites who just finished singing his praises, again, we're talking three days later. The story of God just did a one-two skip a few, which I do a lot, but it's three days later. The song is over. The Red Sea's in the past, baby. Three days in the past, but it's in the past. And the people start to get frustrated and complain. Look at verse 24. And then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. Why do you hate us? Why don't we go back to destroying armies again? Remember that one time you sent the flies? That was so cool. Why all this stuff? And here's the thing. These Israelites do not yet trust God. And there's a pattern that you will see if you read chapters 15, 16, 17, actually through the end, but you'll see this pattern in those three. And the pattern basically goes like this. Problem, complaining, mediation, provision. 
So God allows a situation to create itself where there's a problem. And they have a choice to make at the moment the problem comes. Am I going to complain against the Lord or am I going to cry out to the Lord for help? And instead of crying out for help, they just complain. They whine. Well, why are you doing it this way? And why aren't you doing it that way? And do you hate us? And what Moses does is he mediates. He goes on behalf of the people to God. And then God provides. And that pattern is really important for where we're going to end the message today. But I just want you to see the pattern. So in this story, God leads them. They complain. Moses cries out. God leads them to a wadi or, or, or some water. And when they get there, they're like, yes, thank you. God didn't forget about us. And they go to drink it, and it is bitter. So bitter, they can't drink it. In fact, they name the place Marah or Mara, depending on how you want to pronounce your Hebrew words. It's so gross. And now they're even more frustrated. Well, you, now you look like you brought a solution, and it didn't fix anything. What's wrong with this God of yours, Moses? These are my words, but this is essentially what's in their heart. And I'll dig into this when I'm doing my little Facebook video thing a little bit here. But there's something powerful that happens. God looks at Moses and it says, God taught Moses and Moses learns that there's a tree right there and Moses has to cut down this tree and he throws the tree down into the water and when he does, the water immediately goes from bitter to drinkable. So God took them to the point of desperation and then he waited for them to cry out and then he met their need. (laughs) Makes you wonder if they just cry out quicker, would he have to go through all that? Have you seen that pattern in your life? Something happens, you cry out, and then God brings a resolution. Maybe you haven't seen it yet because you're in the midst of the crying out, and there is no resolution yet, and you're starting to wonder, God, do you really care? And I don't know how God's going to do it, and I don't know how quickly he's going to do it. I mean, it's been three days of no drinks, but I can tell you this, he cares, and he's engaged, and he's watching, and he's got a plan to deliver you. So we get to the very next chapter. Things have changed, right? These Israelites, they get it now. I mean, we got plagues, we got Red Sea, we got armies destroyed, we got water that miraculously changes from bitter to drinkable from a tree. I mean, come on, God's got this, but now they're hungry in chapter 16. Like, not only were we thirsty, but now we're hungry. Oh, what are we gonna eat? And they're just complaining, and you get it, right? I mean, in America, we love our food. If there's one thing in America we love, it is our food. But here's the thing about this little, little deal going on. Not only are they hungry now, but the way they're complaining about their hunger has escalated. I want you to see the escalation. Chapter 16, verse 3. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. Anybody have kids? I have three little boys, six, eight, and three. And I will often hear this in our house. Oh, can we have a snack? We're dying of hunger. It's been 20 minutes. You'll be okay. Calm it down now. Some of you have kids, you know. I can't make it home. We got to stop at McDonald's on the way home. We live 30 seconds from McDonald's. You'll be okay. But this is legit hunger. They haven't eaten for days, and they're in a desert. There's not exactly food lying around yet. Here's what they say, though. Notice this. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Do you see what they just did? They've escalated from just complaining to now thinking, you're going to kill us. You hate us. A little bit of exaggerating going on there. But hey, when times are desperate, sometimes we do that. 
But beyond that even, I want you to see, what are they now doing? They're not just complaining that God hasn't provided. Now they're looking back on their brutality as something amazing. Oh, when we were in Egypt, we had all the food we wanted. You worked 20-hour days, back-breaking work, literally killed and tortured by your taskmasters. Oh, but we had meat. Not out here, boy. We have no meat out here. Now, come on, we laugh at them because they're like, you guys are so crazy. You try it. So Jeff Mannion, the guy who wrote this book, The Lamb Between, that was so powerful for me, he decided before he preached uh, this sermon that he was going to eat nothing but a toffee protein bar for three days, every meal. He said, I started out great, no problem. He said, I'm a disciplined man, I got this. And he did. Until he came home from work one day and his family had ordered pizza. And he opened the door and the smell of fresh pizza just permeated the house. And he ate his protein bar. And one day he came home and they were making stir fry. I think it was, it was either the pizza or the stir fry. I can remember one of his kids looked at him and said, come on, dad, just give in. The church will understand. <laughs> and after the fourth day, he went out with his wife to celebrate and he ate a little picnic uh, with his wife, some cheese and crackers. He said, you know what the funny thing is? I didn't enjoy it any more than I enjoyed my, um, my protein bar. See, what happens next in the story is this. God sends uh, quail from heaven and the substance called manna. And manna literally in Hebrew means, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was either. And the Bible describes it in two different ways. Again, I'll go deeper into that in the videos on Facebook. But he describes it in two different ways. Kind of like a, a wafer with uh, like a honey-flavored wafer that literally would show up. They'd wake up in the morning and there it would be. And they were told to gather in in chapter 16, gather as much as they would need for the day. But this is what they would eat for the next however many years Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Okay, you try that. Go pick anything you want. Pick your favorite meal. Roast beef, carrots, potatoes, I don't care. Indiana sweet corn, praise Jesus. Whatever it is you want. <laughs> and eat it every meal. Three times a day. Let's just see if you go a week. So I had this grandiose idea. I'm listening to this book this week. I'm prepping this message. You know what? I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this. And I picked my meal. I'm going to do this. And I, um, I, it was already like after lunch that day. So I was like, okay. I was chewing a piece of gum. I was like, I want to put all gum, all candy, all sugar. Away. I'm just going to do this thing. And I get home that night. My wife has made spaghetti. And the spaghetti, in case you don't know, is like my favorite meal of all time. Going all the way back to my childhood, when I was like, I think it was my two-year-old birthday, my parents said like, I ate more than any two-year-old could possibly eat a spaghetti, and then I dumped the rest on my head, and they wanted to use me as like a picture for like their ad campaign for this restaurant, and they didn't have a camera. See, I could have been famous. Instead, I'm here preaching to you. But I'm not bitter. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. But in all seriousness, I love spaghetti. I broke down. I was like, I'll start tomorrow. I still haven't started yet. By, by like Friday, I was like, I'll just use his illustration. I don't need to do it. <laughs> this is not easy. And these Israelites just keep complaining about the Lord's provision. Take a look at chapter 16, verse 11 to 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the Israelites' complaints. Now tell them, in the evening you will have meat to eat, and in the morning you will have all the bread you want. Then, then, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And that came true. But later in the story, that's turned into more complaining. Like, when are we going to get something besides manna? Did I meet your need? Well, yeah. Did I meet it when you were hungry? Yes. Have I continued to meet the need? Yes. But you didn't give me the vacation in Cabo. But did you have everything you needed? But yeah, but look at what they got. Back in Egypt, they were slaves. 
You don't want to go back there. See, the question at the end of the day is, do you trust God? And do you trust him to provide? And will you appreciate however he chooses to provide, whether it's the path that you wanted or not? And this is hard. I'm telling you straight up, for me, this is hard. I'm okay with the Lord providing as long as it looks or feels or smells somewhat like how I thought it ought to look or smell. Smell? Smell or feel. All of them mixed in one, man. But notice what the Lord is trying to do. I want them to know that I will provide. And when I do, they will worship me. They'll trust me. There's a reason he's taking them through this season of affliction. Don't waste your season. Learn the lessons that God has intended for you to learn. But so you'd think by chapter 17, right? They'd figure it out again. But what happens in chapter 17 is they go right back to a season of thirst. They're thirsty again. And they don't have any water. And so they begin to complain all over again. In fact, I have this kind of up here as one quote. I grab chapter 17, verse 3 and 7b, and I just kind of smash them together for time's sake. And it says this, But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? The people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord here with us or not? Okay, quick question. Is food and water a need or not? Careful how you answer. If you don't have food or water, what will happen? You'll die. How long will that take? Maybe not as soon as you think. So part of the sabbatical is um, the elders approved me. I asked for me to be able to meet with like a local counselor just to spend some time processing through some things in my heart. Look, whether it's your parents, if they're good godly people or your life group leader, or whether you get time to spend with one of our pastors, I know they're really busy, but if you have that opportunity or a local Christian counselor or just a wise, mature, older man or woman, somebody who can speak into your life, man, there's just such a blessing sometimes at having somebody else sit and remind us of the gospel. And I've been able to do that over the last 60 days. But early in this process, uh, this gentleman said to me, he said, Matt, this, this is hard for me to admit. Like, hi, my name is Matt. I guess I need to confess to my church. He said, um, Matt, you've forgotten how to go to God to get what you need. And so consequently, Life got hard and stressful, and you've started to try to fix everything on your own. And it doesn't work like that. God's built it not to work like that. So God allowed you to go through a season where you would have to completely and totally lean into and onto him. So, how about you? Robert Peterson, Dr. Peterson, he wrote this. Your sufferings reveal the inadequacies of creation by putting you on deserts that can't quench your thirst, feed your hunger, or offer shelter from storms. In desperation, you are driven back into the arms of the creator you have neglected. As you gaze, again gaze at him, you will be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. So right at the same time I'm in this conversation with this guy locally, I was reading uh, Luke chapter 4 with our elders, and I, 
And I was reading Exodus and studying it to, to deliver this message. And something happened in both Exodus and in Luke. And it's important because the one is a picture for the other. So in Exodus, later on in the story, Moses goes up on a mountain to meet with God. And when he's up there, it tells us he didn't eat or drink for 40 days. He didn't eat or drink for 40 days. Jesus in Luke chapter 4 does the exact same thing. He goes out into the wilderness to meet with, with God. Then he's tempted by Satan. And he doesn't eat or drink for 40 days. And I read those same exact passages in the same week. And it was clear as day. Given what this other man had just said in my life. I'm like, you're trying to tell me something, aren't you, God? I should go grab a protein bar and a, and a Starbucks, right? What God was saying to me clearly is, Matt, you, you give in way too quickly to what you think you need when what you really need is me. How can Moses go up on a mountain with God for 40 days in the desert with no food or water? You know how? He's got everything he needs on top of that mountain. The, even the thought, the thought that God would even call me to that terrifies me. How about you? The idea that God would even say, I'm going to give you no food or water for three days and just watch what I can do in you. It terrifies me. I didn't even make it through my first meal as soon as spaghetti was offered. But I believe, I believe that God wants you and he wants me to know there is literally nothing more important in this world than him for you. He really will meet all your needs. And by the way, he's a good God. Have you ever paid attention to how many of your wants he gives you too? But the question for us is, do we trust him? See, I want to quickly, and, and, and my time is running out, but I want to quickly show you something in each of these stories that I just read you that I hope will give you some element of confidence and maybe a little bit of clarity to exactly what I'm challenging you to today. So let's go back to, in our, in our minds, at least to chapter 15. Remember, the Israelites were not given water for three days. By the way, just interesting, on what day did Jesus raise from the dead? The third day. It's not an accident that these things pop up in Scripture. How long is Jonah in the belly of the whale? Or the fish, I should say. I don't really know that it was a whale. I think it was a goldfish, a really big goldfish. <laughs> I made that up. Anyway, what happens if you notice is God says to Moses, the water is so bitter. God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to take this tree and throw this tree into the water, and the water is no longer bitter. I don't, if you're visiting with us today, like what I'm saying, you may be like, what? I can't keep up. And that's okay. Just stick around for the rest of the message. But for those of us who call ourselves believers, and we've been at this, especially for a little while, even a few weeks at least, you need to know something. The entire Bible points us to Jesus. Literally, the entire Bible points us to Jesus. From the front, it points forward. From the back, it points backwards. And here we have Jesus as an apex, but the, the apex is the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Right there in the very garden in Genesis, we are told that, that, um, that there's a tree of life. I believe the tree is Jesus. Whether it's a literal tree, I don't know. I don't think Jesus is a tree, but it's at least a metaphor, a word picture that points us to Jesus. That same tree pops up in Revelation, and we're told that in the very first book, the very last book, that this tree provides fruit to heal the nations. So we're to eat this tree. In Deuteronomy, I believe it is, we're told, cursed is any person who is hung on a tree. It's a prophecy to let us know that one day the Savior would be hanging on a tree cursed by God because he's carrying our sin. And Moses then, told by God, cut this tree, throw it into the water, and the whole situation changes. Remember that pattern I told you we'd come back to? Problem leads to complaint, leads to mediation, leads to provision. 
What's going on in this whole thing is Moses points us to Jesus. Moses in the story is what we call a type of Christ. He's the prophet who goes on behalf of the people and carries their message to God the Father. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says this. He, that's Jesus, personally carried our sins in his body on the what? The tree. So that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Now, I can't say that specifically pointing directly to this thing in Moses, but how did the water get healed? How did the people get what they needed? It was through the tree. Go to the next chapter, chapter 16. The people are hungry out in the desert. They have a problem. They complain. Moses mediates. God provides. And it comes down as quail and manna. And again, this word, this word manna means like, what is it? But the Israelites hang on to the story. They tell the story all the time to their children for generation after generation after generation until Jesus shows up and the gospels. And in John chapter six, he's got all these people out there and Jesus feeds them miraculously, just 5,000 of them through some bread and through some fish. And it's just kind of like this little miracle. And then he stands up and Jesus says the craziest, most offensive thing of all time. He says, now here's the thing. I am really this bread of life. That's the actual phrase. I am the bread of life. In fact, John chapter 6, verse 35 says this. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. The word I am there is actually the word we use for Yahweh, the name of God that God gave Moses in Exodus chapter 3, I think it was. <laughs> I read a lot of Exodus. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, if you're visiting with us or listening online, you're like, that is so weird. Jesus says, eat my body and drink my blood. He's saying this of all of the needs that you think you have in this life, the most important one, the issue of your heart is the one that I came to heal. Go after church today, pick any meal you want, eat it, you'll be hungry by dinner. Jesus says, come to me and eat of my body You'll never be hungry again. Why? Because he satisfies. What Jesus is doing in John chapter 6 is he's letting them know the manna was really about me. They were to eat manna every meal, every day. What does that mean then? Jesus is saying, let me literally be the Lord of your life. Feast on me, your daily bread, every meal, Every day, you'll never be hungry again. Your soul will never hunger for approval or satisfaction again because you will find it in me. Chapter 17, they're thirsty yet again. In chapter 17, what's amazing is in this situation, and I think I forgot to cover this because I wanted to wait. What happens in this situation is God tells Moses, I want you to go over to that rock, strike this rock, and water will come out. God literally brought water from a rock in the desert. It's one of the most amazing miracles in all of the Bible. That it shouldn't surprise us that when our souls, when our hearts, when our lives feel like empty, arid, dry places where nothing is flowing that is life, that God wants to strike that hardness and bring forth life. This is why in Revelation chapter 21, 
We read this, verse five. And the one sitting on the throne said, that's Jesus. Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, to John, the guy writing, write this down for what I tell you as trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And if you had a terrible dad or mom or family environment, that doesn't sound good to you. But if you read your Bible and you learn that your father is not a mean, harsh, punishing, heavenly father, but instead he is a loving, kind, protecting, providing father. Yes, one who will allow you to go through some stuff so he could grow your faith, but one who loves you and protects you and cares for you, then that sounds glorious. I'm going to close with this. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, by God's divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. I want you to focus on this very first part. See, God has already given you a couple of things that you're going to need for the journey. That's how it feels, right? So when life gets hard, when things aren't going the way I planned, then I better take over because apparently God wanted me to do that. Or God has already given you everything you need for what? Living a godly life. In fact, the NIV says for life and godliness, it separates those two things. You already have everything you need. Here's the question for you. Will you trust God today to be all you need? So for some of you today, you've been a believer for a long time, but you're going through some stuff and you just don't know where God is. Today, would you see your heavenly father as loving and trust him? Choose to renew your trust in him again. Some of you in here today are listening online. Or you're just not sure. You gave up a God a long time ago where you just don't even know what to believe. You've never actually stepped forward in any way that says, I'm going to trust God with giving my life. And I want to invite you to that right now. You don't have to know how it's all going to work out, but when you join God in what he's doing, when you trust him, just be blown away at the Red Sea moments of your life. And so what I want to do is just offer the chance for you to respond and however you need to respond. I'm going to pray. And um, gosh, I hadn't planned on this. So I'm going to take a chance. This can either go really good or really bad. If you need prayer right now for some reason, any reason, would you just stand up? I realize you don't have to. You could sit and we'll pray. But if you want to stand, we want to pray over you. Thank you for being bold enough. I know it's embarrassing and you don't know the people in the Bridge wondering what's going on in your junk. God sees and God knows.
Would the rest of us join in praying over all those who stood, and even those who didn't want to stand but still have some stuff? Would you just do me a favor? If you're nearby, would you touch an arm or shoulder, grab a hand if you know them? And the rest of us are just going to extend our hands out towards them in encouragement. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I don't know what you're doing in each of these situations, but I know this. You're God and you're good. I know it. And God, I pray right now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be Moses right now for just a moment and cry out on their behalf. You, you promise us, even the Holy Spirit living inside us is crying out on our behalf and we don't even have the right words. He's actually going, look, here's what it is. Here's what they need. And Father, we know you, little Holy Spirit. We know you're listening to him. So God, I pray right now for whatever's going on in this place, in this room, even online, people listening today, God, would you bring healing? Would you bring provision? Would you do what you do? And would you blow us away, God? Do it in such a way that nobody else could get the credit. Nobody else could get the glory because it's so obvious it was you moving that we're just gonna sit back at like chapter 15. We're just gonna sing a song of praise to you. Father, would you meet us in this place? And until you provide, if it takes weeks or months or years, I don't know how long, God, would you just hold us in this place, comfort us with your presence as we turn to you to get all we need. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would everybody stand and join? Actually, are we going into communion? I blew it. Never mind. Why don't you sit and join? (laughs) 60 days, man. As you practice John chapter 6, you take that bread and that juice today, would you just do me a favor? Cry out to him. Whisper. Say it out loud. I don't care. Do it in your head. But would you just lay out your life and the lives of others to him right now and trust him to meet you in this place?